Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have Brandon with our joke. I'm Brandon. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, You're riding a horse at full speed. There's a giraffe on your right keeping up with you. And there's a lion directly behind you right on your tail. What do you do? You get your drunk butt off the carousel. (laughs) Thanks, Brandon. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is Spencer. Thanks for joining us. Oh, I forgot. Uh, Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise slash might or will distract others take this time to get connected to god let the craziness of the day drift away and ask god to help you stay focused on the step study tonight is everyone ready all right let's start the meditation Thank uh-huh. 
All right. Uh, can everyone please join me in the fog light prayer? It's on the, my left and my right, and in the inserts on the back of your chairs. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact that for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news the book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Melissa to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Hi, I'm Melissa. I'm an alcoholic. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden or spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, that must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they deeply, they deeply slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He has finally realized that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that, that such a vast change could hardly have been brought about by himself. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more, our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish that to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need to have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Thanks, Melissa. 
Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane slash meeting mode or just turn them off. The last two weeks uh, have been spectacular. I can't wait for this next session. Please welcome Pat. Is that written down here? The, the spectacular part, is that on here? <laughs> a recovered alcoholic, my name is Pat. And thanks to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous outlined in this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the program of AA, I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And for that, man, I'll just be forever grateful. Uh, AA didn't just save my life, but it gave me a new life, uh, a new life worth living. And uh, we were talking before the meeting, I could just... I am, I am so overwhelmed with the gifts that I've been given from this program. I could never pay AA back for what I've been given. Uh, just an absolutely, uh, absolutely new life. And, uh, so, yeah, we've uh, we kind of covered the, la- the first two steps uh, the last couple of weeks. And, uh, and I, and I want to kind of go over that again because we're getting ready to make a decision. And they're going to ask us a question and it's going to say being convinced, <laughs> you know, and uh, and that's important. I mean, it's a those that that question, the answer to that question, uh, is extremely relevant. And I and I, I mean, we we have to be convinced that we're powerless, and we have to be convinced that we cannot stay stopped, uh, we cannot stop starting, and we cannot control our drinking or whatever your drug of choice is, alcohol in any form, whatever that is. Uh, we can't control the amount we take once we start. Uh, they've asked that question about four times. They're going to ask us again at the end of how it works. You know, and, you know, page 44, I think it's the fourth time they, they differentiate the non-alcoholic from the alcoholic, right? When you honestly, when you, when you sincerely want to stay stopped, you find you can't because of this obsession of the mind. And once you start, you can't control the amount you take because of the allergy of the body. Then you, it says you're probably alcoholic. Uh, only they only say that because I'm not allowed to call you one. You're the only one to come to that conclusion, right? But if you can't stay stopped, you're given good reason. If a doctor tells you you're going to die, if you're going to lose custody of your children, if you're going to blow up another marriage, if you're going to give up another career, uh, and you can't stay stopped facing those consequences, if a judge tells you if you get high one more time, you're going to jail, and you get high, you know, I've done it, I'm guilty, you know, uh, then you're, have a seat. You know, you belong. You know, you've been given sufficient reason. Uh, a normie would say, I'm done. I'm done. And then they give us our choice, right? Face alcoholic destruction or accept spiritual help, right? Go on to the bitter end, blotting out our intolerable situation or accept our spiritual solution, right? Which is what this is here. This is a spiritual program of recovery. I mean, that might be disappointing to some of you, but that's the deal. You know, this is the good news, bad news, I always say, right? The good news is you don't have to believe in anything when you get here. The bad news is this is all about God, right? Because if there was another solution, I'd be there. You know, this was not on my list of things I wanted to do when I grow up. You know, I want to be a speaker in AA, you know, not, what I, not on the list, right? I'm here because I had no other option available to me. I tried everything else. I had blown up and lost everything that I loved and everything that loved me when I got here. And so I was open 
to the spiritual solution. The great fact is just this and nothing less. We've had deep and effective spiritual experiences that have revolutionized our whole outlook and attitude on life, right? The central fact of our life is that God has entered our heart and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous and commences to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that is stay stopped. I couldn't stay stopped. And that's the solution that Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer, right? The, the good news is, is that we don't define God for you. You get to choose your own conception of God. That's the good news, right? This is not a religious organization. It, it's, it's in the intro in the, in the big book. It's in the preface. This is not a religious organization. That's Bill Wilson making a statement, right? That doesn't mean that we don't affiliate with religion. We're not a medical organization either, but we affiliate with the medical society, right? We, we're, uh, we're allowed, you know. Is that, is that the wrong word I'm using to affiliate? I guess we could be affiliate. Associate. Associate. Thank you. I knew because our traditions tell us we don't affiliate. But we, we, what's the word I'm looking for? Cooperate. That's the word I'm looking at. We cooperate with religious organizations. We cooperate with the medical society. Very lives depend on them at times, right? So the solution, uh, we get to choose our conception of God, which was great news for me, that I didn't have to believe in somebody else's conception, right? And so I chose to believe in the God of my misunderstanding to be a God of love, a God of forgiveness, and a God of mercy. And I just didn't define it. I just knew that there was this creative intelligence, there was the spirit of the universe, as Bill says, underlying the totality of things. And I don't have to define it. I just have to utilize it. I just have to know that I can't stay stopped. My, uh, John W., my grand sponsor, used to say, lay aside everything you think you know when you get here because everything you know is killing you. And what you don't know is going to save your life. Right? That doesn't mean you can't pick up some of your beliefs later. They're just asking you everything you think you know, all those old ideas you have about God and AA and all that other, religion and, and the world around just lay that aside for a while. And why would you do that? Because your life depends on it. That's why. What other reason would you do it for? Right. And then he brings us to step two in We Agnostics, where it just says, do we, now, or do we now believe, are we willing to believe, are we now willing to believe, or do we now believe that there's a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity? That's the second step, just being willing to believe. Just, they're asking the atheists to go from no to maybe. No to maybe, that's all. Just take one step off of where you are. Take one step forward. And what's it say? On that cornerstone, on that movement, a wonderful spiritual structure can be built. Right? The cornerstone. This willingness to believe, this belief, this willingness to believe is going to be the cornerstone of this structure that we're going to build, that we're going to walk through to freedom later. Right? The foundation willingness, the, the cornerstone's belief. And by the way, the bedrock of that foundation is... Surrender is the first step, is that I am powerless. I am powerless. So I am willing to say, okay, maybe you got something here. Because I don't have any other option. So I'm going to say maybe. Maybe this will work for me. I've got evidence that it works for other people. When the book was written, they had 100 people that were, that, that were sober, approximately. Now we're looking at what, a million and a half? Probably worldwide at just AA? Accountant CA, NA, HA, DAA, all them other A's. 
we got a lot of evidence that this thing works. But you've got to be convinced of those two propositions. And I'm not here to convince anybody. We're not here to convince anybody. You need to be convinced. I'm not going to try to talk you into it. You know, we're not recruiters here. You know, matter of fact, if you're not alcoholic, we don't want you here. We really don't. I don't want somebody who can stay stopped on a non-spiritual basis and raise their hand to sponsor somebody who's going to die if we don't put their hand in God's. And if you're here and you're non-alcoholic, just stay quiet. <laughs> don't raise your hand. We're not on a membership recruiting. We're not, we're not there. You know? I'm, I'm, and this is, by the way, being convinced of those two propositions. Then we're at step three. William James says that there's two requirements for a spiritual experience. There's no requirement to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's one requirement, a desire to stop drinking. But there are two requirements for a spiritual awakening slash spiritual experience. And that is admitting that you're powerless and seeking a power greater than human power for a solution. Seeking a deity for a solution. He claims that's two requirements for a spiritual awakening. And this is where in chapter 7, where it talks about be careful not to move your, proper, your, your, your guy off too fast. This is what they're talking about. They need to say, yes, I am convinced. Yes, I am one. I am alcoholic, can't manage my own life, and I am powerless. And only God, only a spiritual solution is going to solve my problem. And, and, if, and if my person who I'm sponsoring can't say that they're convinced that that particular stuff, we're done. We're done. We're not moving on. Let me know when you're done. Let me know when you're convinced. And we'll do the rest of the work. I'm not wasting my time or your time. And I don't mean to sound cruel, but by the way, that my time is the most valuable thing I have. It's the most valuable commodity that we have here is our time. It's all we have, right? We have a message in time. So it says being convinced. If we're convinced, then we are at at step three. And that means that we're going to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, of my understanding, the God of our understanding. Or misunderstanding, for that matter. What do we mean by that? This is where it gets tricky, right? (laughs) Well, my will is my thinking, right? My life is the sum total of all my actions. Every action that I take is born in thought, right? If I could change my thinking, my actions would change and my behavior would change, right? This is where the conversation starts to change a little bit, right? It starts to shift from the mental and physical aspect of it to behavior, right? It's my behavior that seems to be the problem, right? With me... My thoughts turn to an emotion, which dictates my next action, right? Which is a problem, right? Because I, I make decisions based on how I feel, and it's usually a lie, right? It's usually based on fear, right? That underlying, that, that underlies everything, right? All my decisions in life have been based on fear. The fear of not getting what I want, the fear of losing what I got, the fear that you're not going to like me. 
Right? Fear I'm not going to be successful. Fear I'm never going to be in a relationship. Fear, fear, fear. I mean, keep going. You know? <laughs> the alcoholic paradox, right? The fear I'm never going to be successful. The fear of success. Right? The, the fear I'm never going to get a relationship. The fear of losing the relationship. Right? I'm never going to get a job. I'm going to lose the job. Right? We live in this paradoxville, you know, where we're constantly making, I'm constantly making decisions based on fear. That's what needs to change. I need to change this thought process. I need, I need somebody to intervene in the way I think. I always see the third step. Uh, I, I read something in a bigger book that Paul wrote in Corinthians, and it says, capture every thought and bring it into obedience. Now, we know what Paul was talking about, obedience to who, right? But I love that line, capture every thought and bring it into obedience. But I don't even know what the right thing is. I don't even, I've made a mess run in my life. What is the right action? I don't even know at this point. Seems like everything I do falls apart. I seem to always be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I seem to be a victim of circumstances. Why did they only arrest me? Everybody was doing it, you know. I'm a victim, I'm a born victim. And here's where Bill goes from, like, if there's an inconsistency in the book, it's in how it works, right? When we read how it works, just about every meeting, it talks about suggestions, right? This is, we, this is a program of, we suggest as a program of action. When this was originally written, it was anything but a suggestion, right? There was musts in there and, and directions, and, and, I mean, Bill wrote anything but a set of suggestions. And if you know any history of AA, you know that he had to negotiate with the Midwest and the Northeast to get the how it works that we have in here now, which is kind of middle road, right? The Midwest wanted more religion, more God. The East Coast wanted a more liberal version. No God, you know, uh, don't mention God. And, and through negotiation, we got what we see now, which I believe is exactly the way it was supposed to work out, you know. Because a lot of us, when we saw we must do something, you know, we would have stopped reading right there, right? But if they suggest it, yeah. <laughs> we might go for it, right? We always laugh. I mean, Charlie P. and I used to always have this conversation about, you know, whether there'd be 10 million instead of a million and a half if we left it the way it was, or would there be a couple of 20,000? Instead of a million and a half. And, and I, I think God uh, directed it perfectly. We good? They're complaining about me? No. <laughs> so the next word after they describe what we're doing here. And, and notice Bill takes directions out of the original how it works. But what's he write in the next paragraph? The first requirement. The first requirement. Right. Here's what step three is. We're going to turn our will and our life over the care of God. Thoughts and actions over the care of God. And the first requirement for that is to be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. That any life that I am directing is not going to be a success. Right. And it's the first time he brings up this self-will comment, which he doesn't get into too much until later. You know, the, the human gift. Of self-will, our gift, right? The gift that we got that no other animal on the planet got, right? All other animals are instinctively driven, right? They don't, you know, I love the lion uh, 
den. I think that's the perfect society right there. The woman goes out work and the guy stays home, you know? <laughs> I think it's perfect, right? But there's no argument about who's going hunting, right? Nobody discusses, do you want to hunt today? or do you? No, no. The, the guy goes hunting. He doesn't say, I don't feel like hunting today. You go hunt. He just goes and hunts, right? There's no discussion on what cave they're living in. You know, they just find a cave, they move in. There's no, it's not big enough, we need to redecorate. You know, uh, I want to move out of this cave into a bigger cave. There's none of that going on. Okay? The sex instinct's the same. Okay? It's just the scent gets thrown up by the female, the male comes running, bam, it's over. Okay? There's no, I have a headache, I don't feel like it tonight. You know, there's none of that going on. You know? God-directed or instinctively directed, right? But we get this choice. We, we get this gift of self-will. We get to choose how we satisfy these instinctual drives. Right? And they're pleasurable. And God made them pleasurable on purpose so that we would do them. Because they're necessary for just not just my survival, but for our survival. Right? And he talks about, in, in 12 and 12 and, and step 4, he really goes on into these instincts... Uh, God-given, good, necessary for our survival. I don't know if he didn't know enough in the big book. He just didn't want to spend that much time on them. But he talks about the social instinct, this need to come together, this herd instinct, right? The need to come together for society. We would never accomplish anything if we didn't come together, right? So it's made up of... Uh, companionship and prestige and pride, which, by the way, I thought was a really good thing when I got here until I found out this thing about false pride, you know, which which makes me either better than you or worse than you. <laughs> you know, I'm either looking down on you or I'm looking up on you, at you, wishing I was you, you know. This, this, I mean, there's nothing wrong with pride in what you do and how you look and all that kind of stuff, but this, most of us suffer from this false pride, this, this either... Uh, an excessive thought of myself, you know, or I'm a piece of shit, you know, one or the other. That's two extremes. I never seem to be just part of, you know, or just fit in, right? And then our personal relationships uh, also. And we wouldn't accomplish anything. I mean, in the, in the early times, right, they went hunting. They needed a herd instinct. They needed to come together to search for food and survive. And everybody wants to be part of something or to be in charge of something, right? They want to be part of, I want to be liked, I want to be accepted in some kind of a circle of some form. Same with the security instinct, right? We need to build shelter. In our, in our society, you need to make money. If you don't make money, you're not going to survive. You know, these instinctual drives, we need, to, we need food, right? The emotional security, the need to, to have someone else in our lives, the need, need to either be, depend on somebody or have somebody depend on us, unfortunately, for us, for me. Right? That seemed to always be the way I looked at it. Right? I'm either the codependent or I need the codependent, one or the other. Right? And then the sex, obviously the sex instinct, you know, necessary for, to procreate. I mean, God made it pleasurable so that we would do it, so that we would keep the species going. The problem is that I suffer from the disease of more, right? And these instinctual drives are pleasurable. And so I want more of them. So I don't just want to be liked and accepted. I want to be liked and accepted to the extreme, 
right? I want to be part of everything, not just part of something. So what do I do? I start creating this. Uh, Pastor Dave over at CBG talks about this fake self that we create. He called it the first date self, you know, that, that guy that shows up on the first date, you know, that guy, you know, nothing like I'm really am, right? This fake self. So we create this person that we want people to like and accept. And I don't really create, you know, I don't really come up with the idea. Society kind of tells me what I need to do to be liked and accepted. Society actually tells me how my hair should be, what clothes I should be wearing, what watch should be on my arm, what I should be driving, what I should do for a living, what education I have. Society kind of dictates, and my parents kind of dictated and explained to me what it meant to be successful. So I want to show up like I'm successful. If not, I want you to think, at least think I'm successful. So what do I do? Well, to be accepted, I start exaggerating who I am. I start telling stories. I always like to tell you, somebody at, at some table that I was at early in my life, I wasn't in recovery or nothing, said they saw Eric Clapton. And I said, yeah, me too. I never saw Eric Clapton. Okay. I mean, I told the story so many times that I believed that I saw Eric Clapton, right? I mean, even in recovery, would people say they saw Eric Clapton? I said, yeah, me too. I'd even bring up it sometimes, you know, I saw Eric Clapton, you know. (laughs) And they would ask me where, and then I'd lie again, you know, Pittsburgh, Three River Stadium, what year? Uh, 1974, you know. I had this whole story going along with seeing Eric Clapton, right? Why would you do that? You know, why would you lie to be like to accept it? And, I, and I've done that. In, I mean, I told him I saw Pink Floyd, too. i never seen Pink Floyd. Right? <laughs> and that's just a couple examples of what I would do to be liked and accepted. Say anything, be anything, do anything so that you will like and accept me. Right? Spend money I don't have to buy things I don't need to get people I don't even know to like me. What is going on there? Why do I have this need to have the outside validate me so that I feel good on the inside. Right? My whole life has been about the outside fixing the inside. That if you like and accept me, I'll be happy. The problem is there's never enough of that. Right? I'm, I'm, I have instincts on steroids. I need more. I need more. And what happens? I start lying more so that you accept me. Somebody catches me in the lie and all of a sudden I'm in conflict. And then self-will just collapses. My life run on self-will just starts to collapse. And I need to disconnect from that crowd and create a new crowd. Right? And the same thing happens in the material world. Society dictates what it looks like to be successful. We have billboards that tell you what you should look like, what you should wear, and what you should be driving to be successful. What your body should look like. What weight you should be. Right? You just can't feel good about just who you are. You have to compare yourself to who they are that says they're successful. And so it seems like anything I buy is never enough. I knew that the car was the key to the girl, right? I just knew that in the 70s. Like, it seemed like the guys that had the fast race cars always got the girl. So I knew if I got the right car, I could get the right girl. But it was never the right car. It was the right car for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. And it still wasn't working for me, so I had to get another car. 
And then that car was shiny for about a month, a month and a half. And then that car, the, the thrill of that car wore off, so I need to get another car. And it just didn't seem to be enough to satisfy me. I remember I bought my first new car, uh, a 1988 fully loaded Ford Tempo. Yeah, I know. Who the hell buys that, right? <laughs> I know what happened. I was, it was, it was uh, the Ford place up in Delray. They're not there anymore. And I know when I walked into that Ford dealership, those two salesmen looked at each other and said, you know that tempo we got stuck with on the back lot? <laughs> this guy's leaving with it tonight, right? And I did. I drove out of there. Fully loaded. I was in my freaking glory. This thing, power windows, power seats, tilt wheel, cruise control. I was on, I was on a high, man, like you can't believe. I get to my butt. I can't wait to show my friends my new car. I get to North Lauderdale, I pull into my buddy's driveway, he comes out, and my, Mitch looks at it, and he says, who the hell buys a fully loaded Ford Tempo? That's an old man's car. I liked that car for an hour. For an hour. I got to get rid of this car. And I did. I got rid of it. That, sh- that car was shiny for an hour. It was about you. It was about you liking and accepting me. <laughs> I, I bought a house in uh, 1982 out in Coral Springs. Man, I was in my glory. I saved money, sacrificed, you know, sacrificed, saving money, didn't spend money on certain things. And so I just putting it away, putting it away. At that time, I could buy a house with $5,000 down. Right? And uh, I take the five grand, I put it down on the house, and man, I'm in my glory. I got my own house. Look at this house. I'm showing off the house. My brother buys a house like three blocks away from me. His house has vaulted ceilings. I had eight-foot ceilings. Why the hell didn't I buy that house? You know, the hell did I have to buy this house for? That's a nicer house than my house, right? Like my house for about six months. It's always about the outside, making the inside feel good. The sex instinct, you talk about instincts on steroids. It was never enough. I have destroyed beautiful relationships, beautiful relationships, being driven by that instinct. To me, it was all about that. It was all about that. Get the right clothes, get the right jewelry, get the right car so that you can get the right girl. I was told that's what success looks like. Get a good education so you can get a good job. You can buy nice stuff. You'll find a nice girl. You'll get married. You'll buy a house. You'll have kids. You'll settle down. You'll have a beautiful life. I thought that was the goal. I don't know if I'm alone. There was just never enough. No matter who it was with, it was always looking for more. Always looking for more. Nothing was wrong with where I was. But why did that look better? Or why did that look interesting? Or why did, why did I pursue that? I mean, I have blown up beautiful relationships for brief moments of pleasure. And if you want to look at the measure of the defects of character, there it is right there. Where did God intend those instinctual drives to be? And where did I take them? Right? There's the measure of the character defects right there. The 12 and 12 speaks to that. You know, that I need to somehow bring those instinctual drives where God intended them to be in the first place. 
the misuse, the perversion of those instinctual drives have put me in conflict with everybody I'm associated with. Every relationship I'm ever in falls apart because I can't control those drives. There's, it just never... I'll tell you, I, how many people have had that conversation? How many people have had this conversation with, with the parents or the or people who raised you, right? Look, son, daughter, what you really need to do is get a relationship with God and get right on the inside. You know, because if you're right on the inside, the outside doesn't matter, right? That was not the conversation. The conversation was get an education so you can get a good job, so you can make good money and buy nice stuff and own a home and get the girl and be happily ever after. That was the conversation. I was convinced that if I got the right girl, drove the right car, had the right clothes, the right jewelry, and people liked me, that I would be happy. It was never enough. It was never enough. And I've seemed to be, and, and I, I don't think that's an alcoholic issue, you know. I don't think that's an alcoholic issue. I mean, I was like that before I ever picked up a drink. There was never enough of anything. I was an adrenaline jerky, junkie as a, as a kid. I almost said jerky. That would describe me better. <laughs> that came out instinctively. <laughs> But even, I mean, before I was drinking, I was fast motorcycles. And, you know, I was a kid that trail bikes and jumps and doing hills that I shouldn't be doing and breaking bones and, you know, just doing stuff for the adrenaline, for the rush. I'm going to change the way I feel by doing something on the outside. When I found liquor, it was a whole different deal. It took it to another level. Now I have permission to violate any principles, right? And guess what? It'll give me absolution later. Right. Alcohol gave me permission to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted it. And then it gave me absolution later on. When the guilt would settle in, the remorse, the shame, that feeling that I was wrong, alcohol would fix that. So Bill, Bill speaks to, at the end of We Agnostics, one of the paragraphs that changed my life, he speaks to the God within. Right? That where are we going to find God? Well, we're not going to... We're going to stop looking for God. We don't have to go from church to church or synagogue to synagogue or wherever you're looking for God. Stop looking. God is inside each and every one of us. Deep down within each and every one of us is the fundamental idea of God. And I think if we really look within, we, we know that to be true. Call it your conscience. Call it knowing right from wrong. Ben T. used to call it the soul, right? One of the guys I chased around, Ben Troxel, you know. The part of you that knows that it knows that it knows. That part. You know? The part that says put the cart back, but you don't. You know? <laughs> the part that says pick up the litter, but you don't. You know? That part. The part says I should stop and help them, but you keep driving. You know? That part. The God within. And my behavior is blocking me from a relationship with that God. My thoughts leading to my emotions and my actions are blocking me or putting me in conflict with the world and blocking me from that relationship. I love the, the analogy Bill uses. We're like the actor who runs the show. If we could just get everybody to do what we want, we'll be happy. Right? If we get everybody to just get on our page, we'll be happy. Because I know what's best for everybody. 
And really, I want what's best for me, and I'm manipulating you to do what I want you to do so that I'll be happy. That's what I want. It looks like I disguise it like I want what's best for my child. But really, what I want is him to be successful so I look good. I didn't even know any of that. I had no idea where I was at. No idea. You know. the, the, uh, I love when, when Bill talks about us on, uh, on page 62. I'm going to go to the book for a little bit. Selfishness and self-centered that we think is the root of our problem. Different by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we've made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So my need to satisfy these instinctual drives, taking them beyond what God intended them to be, has put me in conflict with everybody that I'm associated with and I'm affiliated with. And I'm blaming them. I'm blaming them. I'm the victim. They're, they're reacting to me, and I'm blaming them. They don't understand. They don't know that I'm only trying to do what's best for them. I'm just trying to be part of. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot. And I love the next slide, but you don't think so. But we can't see it. We can't see it. We are running on self-will, run riot. These instinctual drives, these we on steroids. And we can't see that it's us that's putting ourselves in conflict with the rest of the world. Even if it's just internally, even if it's just inside, why am I conflicted all the time? What the hell is going on? Why do I feel like I'm always in conflict with everybody and everything? Why am I constantly in fear? What the hell is going on? They've changed the conversation. They've changed it to behavior. The conversation shifted. It was mental and physical, but now they're talking about our behavior. Why can't I stay stopped? Because you're in conflict, and your behavior is putting you in conflict. And you can't live with conflict. And you can describe that conflict however you want. I love Clapton's definition, torment. When he tells his story, he says, I was tormented. Yeah, I know that feeling. Anxiety-ridden. Fear-driven. Yeah, I know that feeling. They're blaming that feeling on my behavior. I'm never going to overcome that until I reel in this behavior and let somebody else run the show. But to say any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. As long as I'm running the show, I'm going to continue to create conflict in my life. What's our solution? Well, above everything, we need to be rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there seems no way of entirely getting rid of, it, of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we couldn't live up to them even though we would like to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. That's the deal. I need to hire a new manager. <laughs> I have destroyed my life managing it. 
I am never going to stay stopped unless I can change my behavior. Which means something has to change up here. I mean, it told us that in chapter 2, right? That the fact that we pick up a drink would be academic if we never picked it up. The fact that we have an allergy to alcohol would be academic. Or whatever your drug is, it would be academic. That means nothing if we never picked it up. So why can't I stay stopped? Well, they're getting to the point here. Because I'm in conflict. Because I'm full of anxiety. I'm full of fear. And I don't have another solution to that. I think I said it the first week I was here. Sandy Beach always said, when you, you, know, you know what happens when you stop drinking? You're sober. That sucks. Right? The only person that has a solution to that is the bartender and the drug dealer. <laughs> right? And I know that feeling. Alcohol was not my problem. It was the solution. Now you took away my solution and I'm stuck with this. I'm stuck with the torment again. I'm stuck with the anxiety again. That jumping off point that it talks about. Can't live with it or without it. Right? With it, I'm destroying my life. Without it, I can't live with the way I feel. Now what? Now what? Well, this is the how and why of it. Step three. First of all, we had to stop playing God. We had to stop running a show. Not our job. Not my job to run your life. Not my job to dictate what you do or don't do. Next, we decided here after this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He's the principal. We are the agent. He is the father. We are the children. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of this triumphant arch through which we were going to pass the freedom. This is the structure we're building here. Willingness, belief, and God is going to be the keystone that holds our lives together. And through that structure, we're going to pass the freedom. And it's only in that relationship with God that I'm going to be able to eliminate this spiritual sickness that we're going to refer to next when we get there that I suffer from. This conflict that I've been put myself in that's created resentments towards you, which has created fear, which has created guilt and remorse and shame by the misuse of those instinctual drives. That's the nature of the wrongs that we're going to talk about when we get to step four. You know. And if I could reel my behavior in, if I could have God reel my behavior in where it was intended to be, I could eliminate resentments and I could eliminate fear and I could eliminate guilt, remorse, and shame in my life. Or at least find a way to reel it in. This is, this is all bringing us eventually to the, where it pyramids at six and seven. You know, these defects of character, right? The wrongs, how we've wronged other people. You know, incorrect thinking, incorrect feelings, and incorrect actions have put me where I'm at, have put me dependent on alcohol, which is the only solution I know. I'm an emotional cripple when I get here. And I have no other way to deal with that except for medicating. I need another answer, and this is the answer. If we take that position, if we're capable of taking that position, all sorts of remarkable things follow. We had a new employer being all-powerful. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. So this is not a one-way street. He's going to do something for us, but we need to do something for him or it or however you define it. 
Established on footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. Instead of taking, what can I offer? As we felt new power flow in, we enjoyed peace of mind. We discovered we could face life successfully. We became conscious of his presence. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and hereafter. We were reborn. Quite a promise. Quite a promise. Right? Feel his presence. Feel his presence. And one of my readings yesterday said that uh, the grace is like the wind. I can't see it, but I can feel it. And it's the same thing with God. I can't see it, but I can feel it. And that's what they're talking about. But it's when we sincerely took this position. If we don't take this position, it's unattainable. And if we don't do some more work after we take this position, it's unsustainable. <laughs> it's it's going to take work. You know? I didn't get it. I didn't get it. You know, I am tormented at the time when I come in here. I've lost my house. I've lost custody of my son. I have a restraining order on me. I have assault and battery charges. I'm living in the back room at my mother's house. She took the house. You know, my house. My freaking house. She took it. I worked all my life for that house. If you ask me how I was doing, I mentioned the house. How are you doing, Pat? She took it. She took the house. I remember Dennis O. Some of the guys remember Dennis. The old guy probably does. You know, foul shot Dennis. He's the call, right? Before he shared, Dennis would approach you like this: "Hey, tough guy, how's your way working?" He was an old Chicago gangster, right? And I'd say, "Dennis, that house, man. She's taking the house. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get that house back." He said, you're really worried about that house, aren't you, tough guy? I said, yeah, Dennis, I saved all my life to get that house. He said, you're going to lose it. And he'd walk away, you know. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis, you know. I'd see him a couple weeks later. Hey, tough guy, how's your way working? I said, oh, man, I'm still trying to get that house back. I haven't made any headway at all. I got the charges dropped. I got the charges dropped. But I still, she's got the house. I'm still at my mother's. He goes, you're going to lose it. Yeah. As a result of this work, and I'll get to it later, as a result of this work, about three weeks later, he came to me and said, Pat, what's going on with that house? I said, Dennis, I don't care about that house anymore. Right? This was as a result of some writing. Right? I was able to see the truth. And he says to me, you're going to keep it. <laughs> and he walked away. <laughs> I have no idea how you guys know that shit. You know, like soothsayers, you know. I'm in that house still, you know, I, that was what, 32 years ago, <laughs> I'm still in that house, <laughs> but I couldn't get it, right, I don't know if there's anybody sitting here that all you can think about is the stuff that you need to get back, and the stuff that you're losing, and how your life is falling apart, right, I'm Charlie Brown's teacher up here right now, wah, 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 wah. and in your head, all this shit is going on, and you, all you can think about is, how is this going to fix that? How is this going to fix? How is my new position going to fix? How is writing a four-step going to help me get my children back? I had those same thoughts. What does it have to do with it? I've been sitting in a meeting. I was sitting in a meeting with one of the girls. What does that have to do with me getting my kids back? And I said, everything. Everything. 
everything. And you're sitting in a meeting and, you, and you're like tormented, like you've got this stuff going on in your head and you're in one of them open depression meetings, uh, I mean, uh, open disgusting, uh, what do you call it? Open discussion. You know, and somebody asks if anybody has a problem, right? I was like, yes, yes. I'm losing my house. The car's gone. I'm still living at my mother's. I'm 36 freaking years old. And, and always there was some smart ass that would have to say, you need to turn that over. And I would look at them and look at them. What the hell are you talking? I need an attorney. You know? What the hell are you talking about? Turn it over. I have no idea what you're talking about when you say that. I'm at the third step. Now, hey, I, I've talked to a few people in the, in the travels that have had an experience in this step. I did not. I was not reborn. You, you want to rebirth me? Give me my house. <laughs> then I'll be reborn. And I, Jim B. was doing a big book study at the Fifth Chapter Club when they moved over to Lauderhill. And, and Jim did a third step talk. Talked about how great he felt after he got up off his knees with his sponsor and all that. And I went up to him and I said, not my experience, Jim. <laughs> you know, I need, I, I'm falling apart. I'm falling apart. And he said, uh, did you start writing yet? I said, no. Why would I do that? I haven't gotten three. He said, you're not going to get three until you start writing. He said, you made a decision to seek God. Now start taking some action. That's all you've done. You've come, you've made two conclusions and a decision. You've done no work whatsoever. Take some action. The decision will be completed in step nine. The work to get where you want to get, the work to be reborn, will be in the process of four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And he was right. He was right. It wasn't until I started putting pen to paper. And I don't know why that miracle takes place. I don't know why it's different on paper than it is in my head. It's just the process. You have to trust the process. When it comes from my head, down my arm, through the pen, on the paper, and I look at it, I go, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, boy. I see the truth then. But in my head, it just makes perfect sense that if that bitch would just let go of my house and stop torturing me for pleasure... Everything would be fine. I'm still trying to manipulate the world. I'm still trying to live on self-will. I don't know how not to. Those muscles are strong. I've been living on self-will my whole life. I'm 36 years old when I get here. I don't know anything about giving up control. Matter of fact, I think I shared the first week here. If they'd have used the word surrender when I picked up my white chip, there's no way I'm getting up out of that chair. Or if they would give up the fight. Hell no, I'm not giving up the fight. Not yet. I had no idea what they were talking about. Somebody said, is there anybody that wants a new way of life? And I went, oh, yeah. Yeah, I would like that. And I jumped up out of my chair and picked up that white chip. Thank you, God. Yeah. So this prayer is to validate the position that we're going to take. The new position is that he's the principal, I am the agent, he is the father, I am the child, he is now running the show, I am just the employer, the employee, he's the employer. And now I need to somehow align my behavior 
with those principles, with spiritual principles. But I'm incapable of doing that at the moment. So I'm going to validate this new position by doing this third step prayer with my sponsor. And then I'm going to move on and do the work. How about we close with the third step prayer? What do you think? Not close the meeting, by the way, but close this talk. You guys ready? God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always, right? Terms of surrender, right? That's what that is. Terms of surrender. I offer myself to you and you can build with me and do whatever you want with me, right? Relieve me from the bondage of me and I'll do your work. Take away my difficulties and then I'm going to bear witness of your power, your love, and your way of life. It's, there's, there's terms of surrender there. He will do something for me, but I've got to do something for him. Right? Can't keep this thing unless we give it away. I mean, it starts right here. It starts right here. And then it talks about some people have a, 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 a real experience with the step right here. I didn't. And next week I'll share where my experience started. Thanks for letting me be here tonight. <laughs> All right, let's give Pat another round of applause. And now we have Ryan with our secretary's report. There's also QR codes on the back of the chairs. If you'd rather give through Venmo, we can do that. As the baskets are going around, I've asked Freddie to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in AA identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. So let's welcome up Freddie. Hey everyone, Freddie, alcoholic. Uh, Recovered, we are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body, page 23. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Nineteen forty style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experienced is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back into his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate. Does anybody need a sponsor? If you could raise your hand. No. If you're too shy, just come stand up here really awkwardly after the meeting and someone will come and talk to you. Um, can the recovered alcoholics raise your hands? Awesome. If your hand's not up, talk to someone whose hand is up. 
Uh, we have a couple of announcements. Broward County Intergroup is where you can buy AA-related literature and medallions. Intergroup is also responsible for creating our where and when and scheduling the AA hotlines. Stop by and visit them. Broward County Institutions Committee is responsible for bringing meetings into places where people like us can't get to an AA meeting, such as jails, detoxes, and rehabs. They meet monthly to organize the meeting schedule at the 12-step house. Is anybody here from BCIC? Just talk to Peter after the meeting if you have any questions about BCIC. So next Thursday, we have Pat doing our, his fourth session. So uh, definitely come check that out. Fellowship starts at 6.30. Also, Monday night, 7.15, on the third floor of this building, we have a big book study. Uh, we're currently in How It Works, so uh, it's definitely a good time to check that out. We have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale on the table in the back. If you're interested in any of that, it's for see any home group member. We meet every Thursday, starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Ryan. We have tonight's session and all the past speaker podcasted at alcoholicsandgod.org. I'd like to invite everybody to our Monday night big book study once more. We're finding out how it works and how it doesn't. <laughs> and those who wish to thank Pat, uh, please line up in the center aisle. Let's all circle up and close with the Lord's Prayer. Alcoholics still sick and suffering in and out of the rooms. Who woke us up today?
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Time in my life 
are green now, growing vines. They twist and turn each way, flowers blooming all the time outside my door. Never before. I had to change everything to realize that today is the best day of my God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Just won't say 